The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's cloud strategy and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, I promise you're in the right place. This is Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers Radio. We are live. It's already September 15th, 2015, coming to you from New York and everywhere. So let's get started. The buzz today is better together. Hmm, what does she mean by that? Let me tell you. The insurance industry appears to be at a tipping point. What does that mean? Well, they're on the verge of exciting and massive growth. But this requires historically independent risk and finance professionals to leave their silos, you know, where they're all shuttered up doing their own thing, and collaborate. What a thought! Is it possible? Well, according to a 2014 IDC white paper commissioned by SAP, an integrated risk finance profile can facilitate a lot of good things. Improved financial forecasting, and who doesn't want that? Enhanced timeliness, accuracy, and completeness of information. What are you going to do with that? Well, it's going to give your company a 360 view to help with effective decision making. And who doesn't want that? And it'll help to enable faster response to the evolving regulatory mandates. And ugh, we all want to have to deal with regulations and mandates. And you don't want to be a laggard. you got to keep up with those. But listen, is this realistic? Is it possible to get risk and finance together? We've assembled a panel of experts literally from around the world today. Very honored to have them all with us. And we're going to be addressing this this topic. And the topic we're calling, very interestingly, is an interesting math problem. We're calling it risk plus finance. One plus one equals three. I know. Keep scratching your head, but listen up and we will explain as we go on. So first up, I'm very pleased to welcome our first panelist. He is calling in from Zurich, I believe. And his name is Daniel Houdenshield. I will spell it H-A-U-D-E-N-S-H-I-L-D. He leads the Performance Improvement Division for EY's Financial Services Advisory in Europe, the Middle East, India, and Africa, and EY's SAP practice for financial services in the region. And Daniel has a very large business card. And he has sent me a wonderful quote from Abraham Lincoln. That's the 16th President of the United States. Here's the quote. Give me six hours to chop down a tree... And I'll spend the first four hours sharpening the axe. Well, well done, Abraham Lincoln. Daniel Howdenshield, welcome to the show. How are you today, Daniel? Yeah, thanks, Bonnie. Uh, Not bad at all. I'm very happy to be here. Delighted. First of all, what time is it in Zurich? Tell me, are we keeping you up? No, no, this is uh, regular working hours. It's about 6 o'clock, and the sun is still kind of shining in the sky, and uh, it's just coming to the end of a regular Tuesday afternoon. Okay, well, thanks for joining us. Tell me, you picked a quote from Abraham Lincoln. Very interesting. What does this have to do with our topic today? 
Well, uh, I think if you asked Abraham Lincoln, he'd probably just say, well, he's just talking about them, their trees, right? But I think <laughs> from, from, from our perspective, what we see at EY is that there's almost a perfect storm gathering now. And uh, the businesses are faced with really kind of fundamental changes uh, to the way that they do their operations, the way that they view the business, the way that they integrate their business into, into the digital world and to meet the consumer in the digital uh, marketplace. And there will be winners and losers um, of this. And uh, obviously, uh, in, in after the storm, uh, it'll be a lot easier to collaborate with those who are left over because there will be fewer of them. And what we see here is, is essentially that, um, you know, if it was up to me, um, mm-hmm. given the time frame, I'm not saying wait until later, but given the time frame, I think companies need to be really, really sure about how they're going to move how they're going to differentiate their brands in, 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 this, in this weather, um, and then make one decision when they do decide to execute and follow through that decision until they sort of felled the tree. Very interesting. I love when you said "damn dear trees." That was that was very charming, Daniel. I I didn't expect that coming from you. Uh, my question is: It sounds like what Abraham Lincoln did, and what you are suggesting is: you have to think, you have to plan, you have to know the landscape literally before you do anything. So, is six to four? Just going back to this quote, is, and we're on the subject of math today. Is six to four a good ratio? Plan for six of the six hours. Plan for four before and sharpen the axe before you do anything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's uh, it's 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 an indicative uh, standard. I wouldn't necessarily, uh, um, you know, Abraham Lincoln was around well before some of the challenges that we're facing now. I think, uh, you know, I think he what he's basically also saying in another kind of proverbial sense would be measure twice, cut once, right? And mm-hmm. I think what yes. companies really need to do now is plan first and execute once, right? Yes, that's the carpenter's rule, right? Measure twice, cut once, because once you cut, that's it. Thank you for a good opening to our topic, Daniel. Pleasure to have you on, and thank you for joining us and adding to your long day. We appreciate it. Next up is somebody who's even farther away. It's Francesco Nagari. He's a partner in the U.K. member firm of Deloitte. Our friends at Deloitte, shout out to... Carla, and shout out to Amanda and everybody else. Uh, Francesco is based in Hong Kong, so I'm going to take an educated guess here. It's about 12.07 a.m. there. He will confirm if I'm right. He's also the firm's global IFRS insurance lead partner, which is why he's with us. And Francesco has sent me an interesting quote from Andrew Tobias. Anybody not familiar with the name? Uh, Tobias is an American journalist, author, and columnist whose main body of work is on investment, and he's been the treasurer of, well, not to get politics into this, but since 1999, he's been the treasurer of the U.S. Democratic National Committee. Well, there's a lot of mandates and regulations involved in that. Here's the quote. There were only two things as complicated as insurance accounting, and I have no idea what they are. <laughs> Love the quote. Francesco Nagari, good morning. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. I'm all right. Thank you, Bonnie. Thanks good for joining us. I know we're keeping you up very late. Talk about an extended workday. Yeah, well, uh, I well, I decided to do it, so let's do it now. <laughs> I appreciate that. So, talk to me about this quote from Tobias. Very interesting. Well, uh, as you know, I insurance accounting has been uh, uh, that weird passion that has been, uh, you know, accompanying me my entire professional life. And uh, uh, when I uh, when I read about that uh, that quote, <laughs> I thought it was uh, quite. Uh, Quite telling the story of uh, of this industry and the way uh, they try to communicate to investors. And 
uh, and a bit of a curse that they've been uh, suffering all this time. Um, whenever you, uh, you talk to the men in the street, uh, you think you're going to understand how uh, insurance companies make money. They, uh, they scratch their heads. They probably say, not really, because uh, whenever I pick up a report from a financial insurance, uh, from an insurance company, uh, I can't make up uh, whether these, uh, these numbers make any sense to anybody. Uh, so Andrew Tobias, uh, I thought, uh, captured that spirit uh, very well. And um, what was coming uh, is actually uh, potentially the cure to, uh, to this uh, long-term disease. And uh, um, I believe that, uh, that that actually is going to be uh, quite an important change for the whole industry. And uh, I'm excited that uh, we can talk about that because uh, that is probably one of the catalysts that is going to make the one plus one equals three in many, many companies in the world. Thank you. I was just going to ask you to get back to our math problem. So we are on the process of defining it and explaining it. Thank you so much, Francesco. A pleasure to speak with you. And now let's bring on our third panelist. She's been on a couple of times on Game Changers Radio, but it's been way too long. She is Pat Saporito, a senior director in the Global Center of Excellence for Analytics at SAP. And Pat has sent me a quote from Benjamin Franklin. What a great trio of attributions. We've got Lincoln, Tobias, and Franklin. And uh, any of you remembering or not, Benjamin Franklin was one of the U.S. founding fathers. I don't know if there's anything he didn't do. He was a polymath. He was a leading author, a printer, political theorist, a politician, a Freemason, a postmaster, a scientist, an inventor, a civic at- activist, a statesman, and a diplomat. I love the diplomat being last in his Wikipedia profile. Benjamin Franklin would probably say, I could have invented Wikipedia. I bet he could have. And here's the quote, and these are words to live by. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of Cure. Well, that sounds like something everybody's grandmother told them. Pat Saparito, welcome back. How are you? I'm great, Bonnie. Doing great. Thanks for joining me. Tell me, Benjamin Franklin on a radio show called Industry Cloud Trends, would he be shocked or delighted? I think delighted. I think he was the original <laughs> Renaissance man. <laughs> mm-hmm. So tell me about the quote. Answer prevention is worth a pound of cure. How does that relate to our math uh, conundrum here? Finance, a risk in finance, one plus one equals three. What, what are we saying? Yeah, what we're really saying is we need to be able to tackle um, what's happening today, and I call it, uh, Daniel talked about the perfect storm. I'm going to talk about the triple tsunami here. So it's uh, big data, um, you know, obviously more and more data being uh, coming at us, right, for good and for bad. Um, the Internet of Technology, meaning that that data is all interconnected in real time. And then the last piece, of course, is all the regulations, you know, never ceasing, right? So it's more and more of it. And so that's the triple tsunami that we're dealing with. And we might get back to our one plus one equals three, which is how to tackle um, all of that. And um, so rather than wait and tackle it on the back end, um, you know, uh, tackling things after the fact, what we really want to do is be ahead of it and be able to recognize um, the risk issues and the, um, and the finance issues, performance management issues, for example, upfront in real time uh, as much as we can look at those leading indicators for them. So that's Pat, what, so uh, mm-hmm. you go ahead. I, I was just going to ask if you agree that it's time for risk and finance professionals to leave those silos, leave those ivory towers, if you will, and start talking. Is that what's Absol- key here? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's absolutely the, the key, key point because the interesting part is that what ends up happening is if they have the same data foundation, I mean, their metrics are probably going to be different, right? But if they're working from the same data, um, regardless of who asked the uh, um, uh, request for ad hoc uh, kinds of data calls, et cetera, 
or whatever, at least they'll come up with a, a consistent, it's all about consistency in terms of the mm-hmm. response and of the data. Okay, thank you, Pat. Also, good introduction here. Three good quotes, three good panelists, and now I have probably the toughest thing I want to ask all three of you. Pat knows the drill, but Daniel and Francesco are new to this, so I'm going to start with Daniel in Zurich. What are you drinking right now? What's in your cup today, or what are you planning to drink after the show, Daniel? Talk to us. I've got a Japanese green tea in my cup. Um, Although I wish it was kind of an espresso, but I found that if I, if I drink too much espresso, I kind of like um, spend half my day sort of hovering lightly above my desk, and uh, <laughs> the green tea gives me the ability to kind of uh, you know have the same uh, same same type of concentration without the uh, added uh, jitteriness, and so that's uh, that's what in my that's what's in my cup today. I, I love that expression, hovering abo- above your desk. I made the mistake years ago, Daniel. I was in a I used to work for where was I? I was at um, Nokia. Nokia. And uh, we had a big meeting one morning and there was some extra coffee on the the tray somebody brought in. They said, hey, Bonnie, would you like a coffee? I wasn't a coffee drinker. I didn't think about decaf versus caffeine. All I knew was that caffeine was not my friend. Well, I didn't ask. I took this huge cup of coffee and was very thirsty and I drank and drank and drank. Talk about hovering above the desk. I think I was just an inch under the ceiling for the entire three-hour meeting, Daniel. Jitters doesn't even describe it. It took me three hours to come down down from that caffeine. So I really appreciate what you say. I've never heard it quite described in my terms, but thank you very much for the thought. I appreciate that. Francesco Nagari, what does one drink at uh, 1214 in the morning in Hong Kong when you're on a U.S.-based radio show? Well, um, my drink uh, is, uh, is an Italian coffee. Uh, it's an espresso, double in fact, uh, made with mm. uh, Illy Cafe, uh, which is a coffee that is made uh, in the town of Trieste in the northeast of Italy. Um, it's my favorite coffee, and I made it uh, with uh, uh, my coffee machine, which is uh, a tazzona, which means big cup in Italian, uh, from uh, uh, a coffee maker uh, factory in Italy also called Bialetti. And um, Bialetti is, uh, is a company that uh, invented uh, that coffee machine that uh, most households have got, the Mocha, uh, in 1933. And uh, that was the same year when uh, the founder of the Ely Cafe uh, started their business in Trieste. And, uh, and it's just a fabulous coincidence that uh, two of the best things about coffee that there are in the world are in my house here in Hong Kong, and uh, they keep me awake to make sure I do a good job in the show. Oh, that's very sweet. I appreciate that. I, I, you said you're having a double espresso, right, Francesco? Yeah. And, and I learned recently, I want to share this with Daniel, uh, I didn't know it, that espresso shots have fewer milligrams of caffeine than regular brewed coffee. Did you know that, Daniel? I didn't. I did know that. I didn't think if you want to, if you want to really get to kick me up, you know, the, the best coffee you can get is that kind of diner cafe coffee, you know, that yes. comes in those big jugs. That's, that's, that's the right. Uh, the espresso isn't quite, uh, doesn't quite have the, <clears throat> the pick me up that uh, those do. That's right. One two-ounce double espresso shot has about 80 milligrams, eight zero of caffeine, whereas a 12-ounce brewed coffee, as you said, the diner mug or bigger, has about 120 milligrams. So we're talking about 50% more. Wow, wow, wow. Very interesting. I did not know that until recently, and I'm glad you did. Uh, and Pat Saparito, where are you calling from, Pat? I know you're somewhere in the U.S., and what time of the day is it, and what's in your cup? Yeah, it's easy, it's easy today. It's about quarter after 12. I'm actually on the East Coast. I'm in New York, uh, unbelievably, ah. um, mm-hmm. since I've been spending most of my time in Latin America. 
and um, I would say at least 50 to 60% of my time. And, uh, wow. and given, uh, given that, Bonnie, I decided this morning I would try some, um, it's a Latin coffee, or it's not a, not a coffee, it's a stimulant, called Yerba, Yerba Mata. <laughs> so, Yerba Mata, I've heard I don't of think I can that. pronounce it. Um, so, it actually, a little disappointed, I kind of taste like, actually, green tea is better, is my comment. Um, but it promises all kinds of wonderful, uh, wonderful advantages. I'll let you know later. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll just give you a little background here. Yerba mate, Y-E-R-B-A-M-A-T-E, like mate mate, is yeah. a beverage made from the leaves and stems of a powerful rainforest tree native to the subtropical rainforests of Paraguay, Brazil, and Argentina. And very, very interesting. Okay, well, you can look it up, everybody, and find out the good and the bad. And there's supposed to be some health benefits. There's supposed to be six health benefits. And then there's a question from the Mayo Clinic. Is it safe to drink? OMG. Well, that's a totally different show. We don't have time for that. But thanks for the news, Pat. Be safe. What can I tell you? As Pat knows, and Francesco and Daniel may have guessed, they don't let Bonnie have any caffeine on radio show days. So I am relegated to a glass of cool, clear, filtered water in a beautiful cup with a green straw because we're talking about insurance and risk and finance and the word money's in there somewhere and that to me means green and hence the green straw. You are listening to Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers Radio. If you're keeping track, this is episode number nine in a wonderful series we started several months ago, one of our 18 different Game Changers Radio series. My very special guests today are Daniel Howdenshield, who is from EY, calling from Zurich, Francesco Nagari at Deloitte, calling from Hong Kong, and Pat Saparito calling from probably about, I don't know, 20 minutes away from me. We're both in New York today. It's a beautiful sunny day, clear blue skies. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Our topic today is risk and finance. One plus one equals three, and we're going to prove it. So we're going to take our first break right now. When we come back, Daniel and I are going to, well, during the break, we're going to muddle over how we start the roundtable. We'll come out with a very interesting topic to kick it off, 30 minutes nonstop. And in the meantime, I'm going to say to Michael, our engineer... Let's take it out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. SAP, co-innovating alongside customers, is taking its industry-specific solutions into the cloud. Join us to learn how to make the world run simpler in the cloud without missing a beat. It's a tall order. Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers brings together the people who are making it happen. We'll delve into very specific industry challenges and also solutions that run across disparate industries, all to help you succeed in your mission. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show using Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers. 
Welcome back, and we would love for you to join us on Twitter. We've got some active tweeters here. Joe Pecor, P-A-C-O-R, tweets under the handle P-A-C-O-R-J-O for Joe. Thank you very much. He's keeping track of the conversation here. We also have our good friends at Deloitte SAP, just how it sounds, at Deloitte SAP. And we've got Brittany Schaefer at SAP tweeting at B-A-S-C-H-A-E-F. There you go. So we'd love to have you join us. Hashtag SAP Radio. Any interesting questions or comments, I'll be happy to read them on the air. So we're going to get our roundtable started right now with Daniel Howdenshield from EY. And Daniel, I'm looking at your notes, and here's an interesting way to start, I think. You say the classic insurance model is dead. Companies who do not change their approach will be so as well. That sounds very dire and damning. So let's talk about that. Daniel, why don't you kick this off? Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Bonnie. I mean, uh, I think, again, f- from what we see in the marketplace at the moment, right, is, is, is that technology is essentially really fundamentally changing the nature of the game, right? I mean, if you look back, um, you know, to the point in time where Lloyd's was still insuring the ships coming in from Africa and they had a central bell on the floor so that every, all the underwriters would know exactly, you know, when um, a ship had come in or two bells if a ship had not come in or if there was an issue with it so everybody could make their adjustments to their figures at the same time, right? Now, you're, you're, you know, that's, that's the knowledge that's power in that particular place, right? And now what you're looking at is a, is a place where digitalization um, and the consumer are changing the way that knowledge is driven and the way that risk is assessed. Um, you don't have to look too far to find examples, right? If you take, for example, um, self-driving cars, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you ensure uh, a fleet of cars where basically, you know, the car is almost incapable of making accidents, right? Um, you know, that's, that's, you know, one complete, you know, market now closing off to the insurance companies. Another classic insurance example is I want to go skiing. You know, I'd like to insure my skis and my family, you know, while I go. For classic insurance companies, that's very difficult to do because it breaches life and health as well as property and casualty, right? And companies can't keep up with even that kind of change, right? So what you're looking at is a, is a place where digital disruption um, and, and, and the technology of the future is actually just pulling out the rug underneath some of these classic insurance companies. And they're looking at their old archaic architecture and saying, how can we possibly keep up with, with the modern, you know, with, with, with this demand. And, um, you know, there, there will be some who don't make that, who don't make that renovation, who don't make that change. Interesting. Is this keeping the CEOs awake at night or everybody else at the C-suite table, Daniel, in insurance companies? Well, I think there's a mix, right? I think that there's the companies that recognize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the companies that recognize it and, and don't know exactly what to do with it. And then there's the companies that are acting on it. Um, and there's obviously a lot of noise and a lot of hype, right? And it's come, coming back to kind of that measure once or measure twice and then cut once quote. Um, it's yes. very difficult to understand where, you know, what exactly <coughs> to do about it. Okay, let's get Francesco Nagaria Deloitte. Your thoughts, Francesco? Uh, thank you, Bonnie. Yeah, I have to say that uh, I tend to agree with, uh, with Daniel. Um, we're, we're living through times that uh, are displaying an enormous amount of change, and uh, insurance uh, is no, no exception. They are gonna, they're going to transform themselves, and, uh, and clearly uh, the way they used to do business uh, uh, for many, many years uh, in the past uh, is bound to be different in the future. And that's, that's where actually my mind uh, travels then is uh, how can... Finance and risk executives in, in a business which is changing so much, 
continue to do their job and to do it even better than before. Because clearly uh, the, the pace of change that uh, Daniel has been talking about uh, is also going to demand uh, faster data being produced. And uh, the most commonly uh, demanded piece of data in insurance companies is uh, the profit, uh, which is normally given by finance people, and uh, the capital, which is uh, often given by risk people. Because uh, any, any chief executive that wants to uh, understand what's going on in the business uh, and they will have to be accountable to the investors, uh, they will have to talk about, uh, you know, what is the return on capital. And so all these changes and will put pressure on the return on capital, and uh, you can actually use that to measure the success of this transformation business by business. That's fascinating to see how uh, the way of integration of risk and finance can actually help us measure the, uh, the death or the resurrection of, uh, of the insurance industry. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Excuse me, I got a little tickle in my throat here. Pat Separito, join us. What do you think? Agree, disagree with what Daniel and Francesco have said? Yep, I agree, but I think there's an opportunity, right? And that opportunity uh, really requires companies being agile. So they have to be able to um, to to uh, to see number one what's happening literally either in, inside and outside their organizations, right? Um, be able to use the you know the data and uh, to be able to. Um, see what the impact will be uh, within their organizations, right? And um, to Francesco's point about, um, you know, profitability and capital, right? Where do you allocate your capital, right? Um, and uh, and how, how do um, various factors actually uh, affect your potential profit? So I think it's all about, despite the fact that we've talked about being prepared, the big part mm-hmm. of the preparation, right, is um, having that agile platform uh, the data and the platform, the ability to see things and the agility, um, but it also requires um, having the capabilities in place to take advantage of that. So that's where I think the opportunities are and where the preparation is. Pat, who is that going to take? Who does it require sitting at that C-suite? Or is it somebody coming into the organization new and fresh who understands the digital economy, who understands digital disruption? I think Daniel mentioned that. Who knows what's going on in the world rather than in the bastion or the silo of the entire industry? Who is going to say, wake up? We have to take a different approach. We have opportunity. It's exciting, but damn it, we have to change. Whose job is that vision? Anybody on the panel? Pat, Daniel? I'll go ahead and take it. Um, yeah. I think um, there's an emerging role that we're seeing take place out there, which is a chief analytics officer. Uh-huh. And that's somebody who's using the data. So this isn't necessarily a chief data officer, necessarily about the security of the data, um, but the value of it and what it brings to the organization. But it's definitely a C-suite. It's not just that one individual, right? Um, that person normally has a seat uh, at the CXO level. Um, but it also takes the board and the CEO. But I'll I'll see what responses Daniel and Francesco may have on that. Yeah, I mean that's, okay, that's, that's, this is Daniel yeah. here. I mean that's a that's a great point. I mean I I I get I get a little bit worried when I see the proliferation of the C-suite, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, you know you have chief accounting officer, chief marketing officer, chief now chief analytics officer. Before we had chief data officer, right? Uh, sooner or later you're going to have too many chiefs and not enough Indians. I think part of the problem was that you know the chief financial officer has been so busy with the regulations coming out of the global financial crisis that he's almost lost his place at the C-suite, right? And he comes back and says. Hey guys, what's happening? We're kind of getting, you know, through the end of this regulatory nightmare, um, and he recognizes that the business doesn't need him anymore, right? And the business is kind of now kind of looked towards the chief actuary and some of the other places to say, okay, well, guys, I need to know, you know, not the chief financial officer just talks about what happened yesterday. 
I need to know what's coming around the next corner. I need to get predictive. I need to know, you know, what my capital projections are going to look like on my product suite tomorrow and how, what raising interest rates may have an impact on my product portfolio, right? And, and that's, I think, where the real challenge is. I don't necessarily know if, 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 if adding additional C people is going to, you're going to solve that, right? But, uh, uh, I mean, fundamentally, I think you're in, in the right space. Mm. Francesco, agree, disagree? Well, I... Yeah, I've, well, I, I just wanted to uh, reflect on one point here. Is that uh, um, everyone, uh, Daniel, Pat, has talked about uh, the need to see what's coming in the future. Uh, mm-hmm. but for the insurance sector, unfortunately, the, uh, the metrics that uh, people have been using to measure uh, any, any financial dimension that uh, can be uh, used then to predict the future uh, is fundamentally flawed by the fact that uh, there isn't uh, a common language, there isn't a common standard, uh, and everyone can tell you, well, that's the profit, that's the capital. And then if you try to compare that uh, across countries, uh, you, you immediately have uh, somebody telling you, actually, if you compare country X with country Y, you need to bear in mind uh, one, this thing and that thing. And that's why Andrea Tobias was saying, you know, insurance accounting is complicated. And uh, I, don't, I don't actually remember what are the other complicated things that are as complicated as insurance accounting. If you cannot make the language simple, you end up having a lot of insurance companies ending up in that bucket that uh, Daniel was talking about earlier. Those companies actually don't know that this change is happening because the numbers are not telling them. And, and without a common so, so language, you, that uh, visibility internally and externally is going to be uh, fundamentally flawed. So that's, uh, that's something that uh, for is, is terrifying ahead, for Daniel. the industry because uh, you've got so many changes going on at the same time and uh, mm-hmm. um, no, no real language that can actually... Spread the news around. Daniel, and do, do I hear you. Do you see IFRS 4-Phase 2 to be the, the solution to that? Uh, I think that is a, an element of the solution because uh, certainly from an investor perspective, uh, and if you look at the, the life insurance sector in particular, there is no common language that can help uh, the, uh, the investor make sense of uh, where to put uh, uh, their capital. Uh, you, you're right in saying that uh, some of the uh, lines of business are going to die because uh, technology is evolving and is changing the risk uh, profile of those, uh, those classes to a point that uh, it may become redundant in the future. But how much capital have you got there? What is the profit? Can you actually run it off and, uh, and make money before it is dead? And how long is it? All that information is currently contained in a black box, and you cannot really say what, what is it that you got in a company IFRS 4-Phase is going to introduce two things. Whether you like it or not, everything is going to be on a consistent basis for the first time in the history of the insurance sector, and there is going to be more transparency. So those two things, consistency and transparency, are going to help with the solution. But it's not going to be one ingredient that's going to make the recipe. Uh, you need the other things. Mm. Now, panel. Uh, we have segued into exactly where I wanted to go, which is a definition and some, some exclamation points, not expletives, but exclamation points about IFRS. So allow me, please, just to backtrack one little bit. And I'm looking at Francesco Nagari's notes, and I'd like to start with your, your comment on the IFRS, and then we can continue this any way you wish. Uh, Francesco says, anybody who was to look at what has happened to financial reporting standards in the past 10 years would be in awe of the sheer amount of change compared to what 
what we have before. And now he says, and this is where I wanted to pick up, the most remarkable feature of this change is captured by a four-letter acronym, IFRS, International Financial Reporting Standards. And he says, IFRS are developed by a non-governmental, non-profit organization based in London that goes by the, by the, from the IASB, International Accounting Standard Board. Any, you want to give us a little more level setting on IFRS or do you think our audience knows enough about it that we can move on, Francesco? I'll leave it up to you. Uh, well, I just want to say that, uh, you know, this, this is effectively the, uh, if you like, if I can stay on the analogy of, uh, of recipes and, and cooking, this mm-hmm. is, uh, is sure. the, effectively is the, uh, is the, uh, the recipe uh, book. Uh, this is how you cook uh, uh, the various uh, dishes that you serve in a meal. Uh, this is a body of, uh, of rules that uh, uh, this, this body, the ISB, has developed uh, covering all the transactions that uh, happen in the economy every day. And, uh, and this has been uh, the basis that uh, chief executives uh, and chief financial officers have, have used to produce financial reports and tell their, their investors that we're doing well and this is why, and the reporting profit. And the fact that this was adopted uh, widely around the world since 2005, that's why the, the last 10 years have been particularly important, starting from Europe. Europe has made IFRS the continental financial reporting regulation, and many other countries have followed, 140 countries. Uh, the United States of America has are still the biggest capital markets. They are not using IFRS, but they are allowing IFRS reporting companies to, to, to uh, issue shares in the stock market in New York, for example, uh, presenting IFRS financial statements. So that is becoming, de facto, the, the global language for, for, for finance. So when I look then at insurance, I say, well, great. How is insurance still uh, suffering from that? But the reason is that uh, for insurance, there is a big label called IFRS on top of it, but if you scratch the label underneath, you find exactly the same differences that existed before. And that's because when the ISB tried to figure out what to do for insurance, they realized it was, as Andrew Tobias again said, it was very complex. And so they decided mm-hmm. that, uh, well, we need to take more time, we need to build consensus around it. And uh, after 10 years, it looks like that uh, they are now almost getting ready to issue their final pronouncement on how to make consistency and transparency the future features of uh, financial reporting regulation for the insurance sector. So IFRS, fortunately, um, I hope, will be benefiting uh, the insurance industry by providing consistency and transparency to investors so they can understand better how insurance companies make money. Thank you, Francesco. Is there any comment here about how it took 10 years for them to get around to solidifying these rules? Is that any say about anything, how complex or what a, a spaghetti pile of rules they had or didn't have before? Anything to add to that? Well, this is Pat. I'll take that up. Um, Go ahead, Pat. In North America, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't have, basically, we have, it's not one federal regulation, right? We have basically all the state regulators. So to get them together to come up with that, um, you know, with the standard, I mean, is part of it as well, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the insurance regulation, not just the, you know, obviously the financial, you know, regulation as well. So it's complex. And frankly, I've been disappointed it's taken um, so long. I think it would be interesting to see how Solvency 2 would take, at some point we'll talk about this maybe in the next area, how that also will affect, obviously, Solvency 2 as far as the enterprise risk management standard. Thank you, Pat. Daniel, comments from you, IFRS? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a good one, um, uh, Bonnie. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, uh, you know, uh, if, you ask the, if you ask the CFO, Insurance companies are dividend machines, right? It's all about the balance sheet. It's all about the ability to have capital in order to pay dividends, right? And, and, and potentially, um, you know, the new standards can give us a view on, on that, right? 
But if you ask kind of, you know, some of the other regulators, then actually the insurance companies are there for the insured parties, right? And they're a fundamental part of the infrastructure that we need to, to have business work with the insurance and the reinsurance sector, right? And if, if, I'm a, if I'm a pensioner or if I'm a person kind of in retirement age and I have um, a, in, you know, a pension fund at an insurance company and I look at the depth and the breadth of the cost of an IFRS 4 Phase 2 implementation, and I have to be sitting there going, and that's all coming out of what would be my margin on my pension fund, you know, and thank you very much, then I have to really wonder if these regulations are actually serving, you know, the, 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 the insured parties um, or if, if, if it's just really, really serving the purpose of the investors. Right? I think that's where I would scratch my head. Hmm. We don't want you scratching it too no, much, I've, but I'll thank have you very much. Perspective, Barney. If I... Yeah, sure. Go ahead, Francesco. Join us. Yes. Thank you. So, so I, I, I think there is a, a great benefit for customers. So the the, the insured party that uh, Daniel was referring to, and, and the benefit comes from the fact that uh, what, what is really going to be the big change for for the insurance sector as a whole when they move to this new uh, reporting basis. Uh, a reporting basis, again, that is consistent for the first time, for the first time in the history of this 400-years-old uh, industry, uh, is that uh, investors will understand, will be able to compare. That means that the cost of capital, the cost of raising capital, which is the fundamental raw material to run an insurance company, you need capital, that becomes cheaper because uh, capital can circulate. There is more attractiveness. When I talk to investors today, if you talk to a generalist, uh, and you say, are you putting your money into insurance stocks? Most of the times, the answer is no. And the reason is because they say, look, why do I need to uh, take a PhD in actuarial science to understand what the hell is going on on an insurance company when I've got the rest of the economy to invest on? My clients are happy. My fund is going, doing well. I can leave the stock from the insurance sector out of my fund and still be happy. It's not going to make a change. The result is that uh, there is far less demand for insurance stocks today because of this opacity in their financial reports, than there is for any other industry. And IFRS can really break that. You remember, we were talking about the curse on insurance reporting. It's really that image of a black box nobody understands, which really makes an investment decision in the insurance sector a difficult one. and requires a lot of investment in knowledge from an investment perspective, and that's not easy to get. It's not cheap. So if you get more capital then insurance companies can do more investments, can actually focus on improving their, their processes, and can lower the cost of their products. And the pensioner will be the first to benefit from that because they will pay less mm-hmm. to get the same protection, the same benefits that uh, they need to live a comfortable life. So I think that there is a, a, a good uh, story, a good benefit for the customer as well as the investors here. Good news. Pat Saparito, any thoughts on this before we move on? Uh, no, I'm good. Okay, I just wanted to bring up something. I was curious about the the uh, beginning, the genesis, if you will, of the insurance industry. I thought it would be an interesting story just to add since we're talking about modern times and we're really talking a lot about the future. So I wikipedia of course. When did the insurance industry start? Anybody know the, the approximate date and which civilizations practice what we know is to be the first distribution of risk in a monetary economy? Francesco or Daniel or Pat? Anybody know that? Probably in Greece or somewhere. And again, it's my Trump guess, Marine. my guess would be the Middle Ages in uh, in Venice uh, ah. when there was these uh, first ships sailing around the Mediterranean. Uh, you're, the you're, you're not I too far know. off. Daniel, want to take a stab at this? 
No, that's uh, <laughs> something with ships, but um, that's okay. about as far as I'm Yes, go. okay. The first methods of transferring, I'm reading, first methods of transferring or distributing risk in a monetary economy were practiced by Chinese and Babylonian traders in the 3rd and 2nd millennia B.C., respectively. Chinese, here we go, Chinese merchants traveling treacherous river, river rapids would redistribute their wares across many vessels to limit the loss due to any single vessel's capsizing. And the Babylonians developed a system recorded in the famous Code of Hammurabi, 1750 B.C., and practiced by early Mediterranean sailing merchants. If a merchant received a loan to fund his shipment, he would pay the lender an additional sum in exchange for the lender's guarantee to cancel the loan should the shipment be stolen or lost at sea. Interesting? There you go. Yep. There you go. So hopefully we all learned a little. I thought it'd be just interesting to see what we're what we're talking about because we're projecting and why not look back over our shoulders? Okay, Pat Saparito, we mentioned in the beginning I did in my opening about regulatory mandates and being able to respond faster, which everybody wants. Uh, and our topic, of course, today is risk and finance. One plus one equals three. So let's talk about some things from your notes here, Pat. You say the recent rise of market unpredictability and challenges confronting the insurance sector is part primarily due to added stress from new or expanded regulatory risks, ranked as the foremost risk finance pressure by insurance polled in the recent IDC study. The second factor is continued macroeconomic uncertainty. Let's focus on regulatory risk. Pat, what do you want to say about this? You know, just more that there's more and more of it, right? Uh, and uh, so, um, so clearly, you know, we've already talked about IFRS, but there's all kinds of other re- regulations, you know, coming forth. So it's not just a matter of um, if, it's when, how much, mm-hmm. and how do you actually, um, how do you actually comply with it? So um, the point about the macroeconomic uncertainty, right, and that's something that we're all seeing, even as um, consumers today, right? How's your portfolio doing? I know mine isn't quite as bouncy as I'd like oh, it to be, right? Please. And it's up and down. You know, we can all see this every day. It's just um, this whole connected, you know, interconnected, um, you know, uh, world economy, if you will. And that all, you know, obviously all of that then goes back to to risk, right? Goes back to some of the regulatory environments as well. So, um, so that's um, so that's partially um, what I wanted to uh, to talk about. Thank you. And by the way, my rule of thumb is don't peek. Don't look. Don't look. Don't look at your portfolio. I made the mistake of looking about three weeks ago. Uh, yeah, it was a great big $100,000 down, and it's not that big to begin with. And I said, damn it, Bonnie, the curiosity really got this, cat. No, don't look. So I just looked again, Pat, and it's on the way up a little bit, but what a slow climb. It's heartbreaking. Talk about the economic instability. Daniel, join us. What do you think about regulatory being able to respond quickly? Is that ever going to be really possible to regulatory mandates in insurance? Well, again, I, I think it, it gets down to some of the questions that uh, that Francesco mentioned. You know, I think it's 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 it is that there are multiple ways to view you know the the, the efficiency or the or the effectiveness of a, of an insurance company to 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 manage risk and uh, market consistent balance sheet, economic valuation, solvency are all and, and U.S. Cap all have a view of that. And uh, unless you're able to kind of walk effortlessly between those different regulatory multi gaps. 
um, it's it, it's going to be extremely difficult to have that consistent view. I think I think that the the people that we tend to talk to they they've come to terms with the fact that that there is regulations. The regulations will continue to shift and evolve, um, and they've kind of taken that that constant change to be a fact of life. I think what they're aiming to do is actually just drive efficiency through it. Right? They can no longer kind of have the luxury of spending thirty million dollars every time they need to release a, a new report. Right? Um, and and, and they need to get it, you know, almost on the press of a button and, and, and be able to kind of respond very quickly to those kind of regulatory changes. And, and that's where the real challenge is. I think that the, uh, the ever-present change is something that they've come to terms with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Pat, I hear you. Yeah, I'd yep. love to add to that. So, so I think what the answer to that really is, and I'll go back to, and I talked about it earlier, it's about having that, you know, an integrated um, uh, risk and finance foundation, right? It's having a platform, so a technology platform that's agile enough to be able to um, to respond and handle large volumes of data, be it internal or ex- those external um, indicators that we talked about. Um, so to the point earlier, I mean, one of the, the beautiful things about um, IFRS some of the XBRL formats and the, the ability to um, use those models as they come out, right, whatever the reporting models and mandates are, if you have the data at the detailed foundation, then ideally what you should be able to do is fulfill any reporting requirements, right? Now, that's easier mm-hmm. said than done because there's other issues around data governance um, and also skill sets of people. But I think that that's what we're really talking about is this integrated risk and data foundation and offering that agility to respond. Um, so, Thank you. Agility, there's yeah, a word we would all love me, to hear. Uh, yes. Francesca here. Yeah, I'd like ahead, to please. add that uh, mm-hmm. one, one thing that uh, is going to come out uh, of the uh, IFRS uh, reform uh, is going to play out in a few years' time. So it's not immediate. But the one thing that is, is really going to make uh, all these uh, new technology that can re-empower risk and finance to work together, is the fact that uh, suddenly, uh, unlike today, you have uh, just one language to report profit and capital across all the insurance uh, business uh, that you are uh, putting together in a group. So take uh, big players like AXA, Allianz, Prudential, Aviva, they got operations uh, everywhere in the world. And uh, they report on the FRS today, and they are allowed to uh, maintain those different practices. If you are the CFO, and you want to uh, introduce this fast reporting, you have to deal with the fact that uh, in Thailand it's going to be one way, in uh, Vietnam is different, uh, in France mm-hmm. is different, in UK is different, and they all call IFRS just because of this big label, but the reality is that uh, your transformation is hindered by the, uh, the absence of a consistent, uh, precise regulatory framework, and that's what IFRS is going to bring, is the consistency in reporting profit uh, on a global scale for the first time. Solvency 2 is another example, is, is regional uh, and is, uh, is clearly impacting a big market, which is the European Union, but it's not as global as, as IFRS. However, also solvency regulation is, uh, is evolving towards a global template, at least, because the uh, International Association of Insurance Supervisors has said, look, we have observed the ISB is doing this work uh, on financial reporting rules. Let's do something that, uh, similar for, for solvency. And so... Perhaps over a longer term, uh, also solvency regulations will converge, and, and a lot of these reforms in solvency capital have actually taken inspiration from the IFRS principles of transparency, the, the, the building blocks that uh, IFRS has been using to, uh, to make uh, people understand better how uh, money is made in an insurance business. So I think that this will make these uh, transformations from a technology and data perspective even more powerful in, in the future. 
Thank you, Francesco. Yeah, and, and I think get to, this is Daniel yeah. here. I mean, yeah, I please. think it depends how people end up using it, right? Um, and then and there's kind of two ways. One is you can kind of comply to the regulation because you 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 need it to, right? And 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 I think the and and, and there will be companies that do it do it that. Oh, it's another report that we need to get off. And then there's a second kind of company that's going to really kind of embrace it and says, look, this has an impact on everything we do. This is how we measure profits. This is how we measure profitability. This is how we choose customer. This is how we understand source of earnings. And on, and at that level, then we need to embrace it and really change the way we fundamentally do things around here. And I think this goes back to what Pat was saying. I mean, here you 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 do need to have that concept of a universal journal. You do need to be able to have that integrated data set between the actuarial systems, the, the finance accounting system, and the profitability management and reporting systems, right? Um, and if you don't have that, you don't stand a chance really to kind of get to that second level of evolution where you say, okay, we've we've defined new standards not just because the regulators made us, but because we fundamentally want to understand the way we run our business this way. And I think that's, I think we're still yeah, quite a ways away from, from having that, um, you know, that change. Right. Mm-hmm. But this is good. I, I agree with you, yeah. Daniel, but, but that's, that's what, uh, what I think uh, uh, I've, I was talking uh, in another event a few, a few weeks ago. I said there is uh, an important regulatory dividend here. And that's really the, the one thing that uh, if you embrace these changes, you make them work for your business at the same time as you make them work for the regulator because you want to be compliant, that's really could be the, really the ingredient to make the one plus one of risk and finance right. delivering at three. Right. And, and uh, you're right. If, if uh, there is an organization that embraces uh, regulation and at the same time as it gets compliant, it also uses it to its own advantage to, to actually deliver real business benefits, that's really the recipe to get uh, risk and finance working together. And one plus one will equal three. Pat, this Pat, Pat, talk to us. Absolutely. Yep. That, so um, thank you so much, um, Francisco, for summing that up because that's exactly what I was, um, what I was leading toward, to making, making that investment, just not the investment for the initial regulation that they're trying to deal with, but building that solid foundation, right, as a platform for growth, essentially. Anybody else on that? Because we are just about at our point where we need to go into predictions. But I have one more note here in Daniel's notes that I wanted to bring up just quickly. Daniel, you say actuarial modeling is a silo function in risk assessment. It may be the downfall of several global organizations in the coming years. You want to just make a side note on that, please, Daniel, before we go into predictions? Sure. I mean, this comes back to, I mean, I think the regulations, we talk IFRS 4 and broad brush, right? But the real mm-hmm. game changer is IFRS 4 phase 2. And, and what, what really needs to happen is that the actuarial modeling needs to take a step closer to the integrated world of finance, right? And uh, up until now, it's the world in the domain of the actuaries, and they have their systems, Moses, Profit, and, and so forth. Uh, and then there's almost an air gap between the rest of the systems, right, um, where, the, where the companies really struggle to kind of get that integration. Um, and up until now, there hasn't really been a driver to kind of get that integration into play. And what we really see now is that, okay, it's time to, time to lift the bonnet on, 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 on those, those systems and also that functionality and really kind of have a symbiotic relationship between the actuarial modeling used to predict um, you know, revenue forecasts and cash flows, you know, for a life portfolio and what the impact is on, on the results. Thank you very much. It is time for us to move into our crystal ball predictions round. I think most of the show has been talking about future forward, looking at what will happen when IFRS finally gets here and the future of the insurance industry and, of course, our big conundrum, risk plus finance, one plus one equals three, and I think we solved that math problem. But let's go take a look into the future, and I'm going to start off with Daniel Howden-Shield. Daniel, 
I love the year 2020 just because it has a certain ring to it. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Take a look into the real crystal ball right now and tell me what will be different about this topic at some point in the future where you can see forward. And I'm going to give you, let's just say, 90 seconds for your prediction. So, Daniel at EY Predictions, go. So, I see a world where right now we have to make a choice. We have to make a product choice. We have to we, we have overlap between product, um, and I think a lot of that is going to go away. I, I see that um, the insurance companies of the future will be a background effect um, of a financial service portfolio, um, which may be administered to me as a as a you know rising wealth uh, um, uh, person or or somebody that, that, that's looking after me from a complete financial perspective portfolio, right? I want to make sure I'm, I'm covered for everything. I give somebody else the contract, and if anything happens, I can kind of claim against that, right? And so I need somebody to make sure that he uses the information of my, around my wider environment, what I do, where I go, you know, where I'm involved with, what kind of risks, what kind of sports I like, and make sure that I'm insured all the time. And I don't want to have to deal with the bother of saying, okay, now are my skis insured as well as my poles or mm-hmm. just the skis? Um, and I want to be able to kind of just go in the ease of saying, if anything happens to my stuff, I got a number to call and somebody will take care of it, right? And I think that that's, that's the world that we can get into, right? But it's going to mm-hmm. take a lot of cooperation between companies that do financial services, um, such as banking and companies that do insurance, which is another divide that uh, we haven't really gotten to crossing too much yet. Well, I like that. I think that's worth skiing toward, Daniel, very much. Whatever whatever steepness the mountain may be. Thank you. Good picture there. Francesco Nagari in Hong Kong. Predictions, 90 seconds. Go. My, my year is not 2020. It's 2025. So five years mm. after what is currently expected to be the mandatory effective date for the new FRS. And I see an insurance industry which is much more powerful than it is today because uh, investors can see its, uh, its role, its uh, profitability, its capital strength, uh, and therefore they've been pouring money into that business uh, with great capital in their hands. The insurance companies have been uh, investing in infrastructure, have been helping uh, developing economies to, uh, to create the wealth that they need to uh, make more and more million people uh, living better lives. And at the uh, steering wheel of these companies, I see a new professional. Somebody that doesn't say, I'm part of risk or I'm part of finance. They are just uh, new finance risk professionals. A new name will be in place then. I don't know what it is, but it's going to be a new professional capable of spanning across risk and, and finance and able to deliver all the key metrics that can keep all the stakeholders happy, that the, uh, the business or insurance is in good hands and is delivering good value to investors, policyholders, and all the other stakeholders, and also keeping the regulators happy at the end. That's well, that's a, that's a lot of happiness, and if we have to wait 10 years for it, I think it's another 10 years is worth it. Pat Saparito, I have got 60 seconds for your predictions. I know you can do it. Go ahead, Pat. Okay, so I'm, kind of, I'm on the same page as Daniel is, and then I see, um, I think it's already happened, obviously, on the corporate side for corporate uh, customers, where there's um, obviously corporate risk managers uh, and managing um, their own risk portfolios, et cetera, and really having insurance companies delivering services. So I agree with Daniel is where he sees from a consumer perspective where the role of an insurance company is going to change, and I think they would become part of almost a, uh, a value chain that's customer-oriented. 
So we'll just be one piece of it, and maybe it'll be around the assets that are the uh, subject of interest for those um, insurers and policyholders. That's what I see, and then the whole topic of um, and risk and finance is going to change right along with that. So what I see is the chief um, chief risk officer uh, integrating with the chief financial officer, and right now already the risk um, risk professionals forty two percent of them already report to CFOs. So we shall see. Thank you. Indeed, we shall see. Thank you very much, Pat Saparito at SAP, Francesco Nagari at Deloitte, and Daniel Howdenshield at EY. Pleasure to speak with all three of you. Uh, I think it was a great conversation. Good energy, good passion, good engagement, and that's why we invited you three professionals who are our game changers today. Shout out to Matt Small at SAP, who sponsors this series, Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers, and everybody who supported this. And uh, shout out to our tweeters, Joe Pecor. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Nice to see you here. Brittany Schaefer, lovely to see you. And Deloitte SAP, always happy to see you. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. That's it for our day. We did two live shows today. We got three shows tomorrow. We are in the Game Changers mode. Shout out to Michael and the Business Channel team as well for getting us on the air. So here's my call to action. And whether you're insured or not, I want you to take my call to action very seriously. Fasten your seatbelt. Even if you're a driverless car, fasten fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a Game Changer today. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Industry Cloud Trends with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week. Music.